If you'll remain standing with me as we read together the gospel lesson from Matthew 26, let's share in God's good word. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved, even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not stay awake with me one hour? Stay awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I was hoping you could run a play for us. We are in a really big hurry. Sure. What's the plate? 29T... Number. 29THD03. Two, nine, THD zero three, T, HD zero three, H, D zero three, D, mm -hmm. zero three, zero three. Hey, Flash, want to hear a joke? No! Sure. What do you call a three-humped camel? I don't know. What do you call a... Three-humped camel. Three-humped camel. Pregnant. Can we please just focus on this? Hey. Wait, wait, wait. Priscilla. Oh, no. Yes. Flash. What <gasps> do no. you call? A three-humped camel. Uh, Pregnant. Okay, great. We got it. Please pumped. just... <laughs> If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to take those out and we'll, we'll get into this uh, as we uh, begin to look at the life of Christ and his real challenge between sloth and diligence. Well, my name is Mark Foster. I'm founding pastor here and it's a great joy to be with you today as we begin this uh, journey towards Jerusalem and Easter week. So slainful, sloth is painful to watch but easy to fall into. Isn't that true? It's painful to watch. So... But it's tricky, isn't it? You see, sloths, they live their lives upside down. And that's what sloth does to us. It actually takes us away from the very things that we were intended to do. So have any of you all ever seen a rescue sloth? No, you have not. Any of you all ever seen the Sloth Express? You know, like the Pony Express where they actually would care something or do something for you. Have you ever turned on the news and, and watched a sloth be celebrated for rescuing someone? You know, like, like you have the canine unit, you have the sloth unit. No. You see, the truth about sloth is this. 
that sloths live for themselves and then they die. Don't be a sloth. That's really the whole sermon, but let's hang in there with me. Okay? Right? They completely, 100%, just live for themselves. Yet we don't want to be like that. So in the Christian tradition, more than 2,000 years now, uh, sloth describes the state of a Christian who remains a newborn in faith year after year. So they might come to the Lord, but they never grow. And the leaders of the early church taught that our eternal life, yes, is a gift from God. But having received that gift, that also ought to teach us to develop that gift of salvation in this life and the next, which requires our best effort, our best discipline, study, commitment, and a lot of hard work. So sloth, as as the Christian tradition has known it, is spiritual laziness, and it is absolutely crippling the modern church. It's just, it's upside down world. Somehow we have accepted the notion that, we know this about working out, right, about your, about your exterior, that it takes sweat, discipline, and a lot of hard work regularly to maintain a healthy exterior, but somehow our interior lives need no such maintenance. You see the disconnect there? That we know that to have a strong exterior takes this, 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 and this, but if we want to look at our interior, look at our soul, it's like, eh. I think it's hard to work on things that are invisible. And, and the thing about the culture is, that makes it even worse, is that sometimes when people are being lazy or they're, they're not doing the things they know they're supposed to do, other people find it cute or quaint. And it's deadly. Right? But, but we think of sloth as, oh, right? That's a baby sloth. He's cute. But that's it. Or maybe you prefer him like this. We think of it as cute, but it really has deadly consequences, right? So God has given you a will to choose which desire you will follow, your picker, the core of who you are, that thing that actually goes on to heaven once your body gives up and you'll be given a new body. But that sort of thing is with you all your life. And so we are in these struggles between pride and humility, um, between greed and generosity, uh, between whether or not we're going to check out that girl that walked by us. That dude is in trouble. Right? You see his girlfriend there? That is not good. We have to choose between lust or faithfulness, or chastity. Oh, or a couple of weeks ago, we talked about gluttony. Oh, by the way, we have cupcakes out there. We're watching. We're watching you. Right? I love the way Rebecca K. DeYoung puts it. She says, the slothful are inwardly unwilling to be moved. They're stuck between a self they cannot bear and a self they can't bear to become. And if we're honest, we all get to that place now and again in different parts of our lives. We're like, this isn't working, but I'm not really willing to do the things that it's going to take to not live there anymore. And we just get stuck. It is brutal. That's what sloth does to us. And we will try almost anything, friends, anything to keep the status quo. This is true in institutions, in family systems, in your personal life. We just don't like change. And so we think, oh, if I could just have five more minutes uh, to rest or be in the bed or to check out or to do this. or do, I mean, we will do almost anything, and it makes things weird. We came across this week as we were um, getting ready for the sermon, and we came across this meme. It says, bought a laser pointer just to aim it at the light switch in my bedroom so my cats would turn off the lights for me when I'm in bed. <laughs> Can you imagine? Now that's just silly. Is it? 
Some of you are going to try that tonight. I know. I know. You're like, we're doing that. We're training the cat. I'm staying in bed. I mean, it's just crazy what people will do to just try to please ourselves so we can do one less thing just to get on with our day, be left alone. You see, the problem with all these things, no matter what we're talking about, is that the foundation of our problem is repeated habit. We just get into these habits and we just are on autopilot. We don't even think about them. We just do what we do. Think about your habit of when you get home from work. Is that an intentional time for you? Or do you just do what you always do? I think it's amazing um, how people can manipulate us and, have, and, and can know exactly what to do. Have any of you ever finished watching a show and then at the bottom it goes, the next one will start in five, four, three, two, one. Maybe you have. And then... You look up and it's Tuesday, right? I mean, like a whole day is gone. Right? It's the next day. It's just, we just do what we do. And, and to think, all we have to do is get up. Just get up. Turn it off. But we don't. We just, we just go into what we do. We just check out. Now, I know. I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll be kinder. You know, we, we won't have to talk about Netflix. I know I'm the only one that's ever binge-watched a season of something at once. I know none of you all would do that. So let's move to our phones, shall we? Um, Americans spend more than 11 hours consuming digital media per day. 11 hours. I'm not even sure I'm awake 11 hours some days. I mean, how does this work? I mean, from the time you wake up to the time you go to bed, uh, you know, there is actually something on your phone that will tell you how much screen time you've had in the day. 11 hours on average. On average. That is crazy train. Or, I don't know, what about this one? The average person checks his or her phone how many times a day? Just guess. Throw it out there. You'll be wrong, but just throw it out there. Yes, we have a winner over here. 150 times a day. Now, if you talk about just your waking hours, that's about every five minutes. So if you have said to yourself, you know, I don't know that I've had a meaningful conversation with my family uh, that's lasted more than five minutes in the last year or two. You're probably right. Because you've got something buzzing in your pocket that goes, oh, hey, oh, hey, oh, hey, oh, hey. You know, that's more important than they are. Isn't that what we're communicating? I mean, what does that communicate to you? Are they engaged in their family? Are they engaged? Do they even know if somebody else is in the room or not? I mean, that, that's like the setup for a bad horror flick. Like, ah, they're about to get it. Because they are completely oblivious. They don't know. Right, but but then let's let's take it a step uh, on down, and that is this: that sloth is not just laziness. It's not. It's much worse than that. It is indifference. It is unavailability to those around us. Isn't it? I mean, that, that's really what we're talking about. It it actually disconnects us from God, from others, from the people of God, from the things of God, because when we're here, it's all about us. Right? I see what I want to see. I'll do what I want to do. I'll communicate with what I, who I want to communicate with. And, and let's, let's just be honest about this. Half of this is I don't want to deal with the person in the other room. That's all that is. 
And if I go here, I don't have to deal with what's going on. You know, you have a brother or sister uh, that's off page in the other room. You know you should intervene. You know it's about to get out of hand. Now, if you're a parent, you know this, right? You, you know that moment before one sibling smacks the other, right? And you know that you should actually get up and be like, hold on. What's going on? Let's engage. Let's be a family. Let's work it out. Isn't that easier? It's just about becoming unavailable to anyone else, to anything else than what we desire. So the Greek word for this, it's been around a long time, is simply acedia, which means I don't care. And you just need to understand that about 85% of our communication is nonverbal. So when you have your phone and you're sitting there, what you're saying to everybody else around you is, I don't care. I don't care. They talk to you. I don't care. I don't care what you're saying. I don't care what your problems are. I don't care if you had a good day, a bad day, another day. I don't care. I don't care if you're in the room. I don't care. That's what that means. Now, I realize that pretty regularly now we talk about Digital media, almost every week in church, because it is a big problem. It is blowing our community up. Because here's, here's the bottom line about sloth. It is a lack of love. It's a lack of a love for God, for your family, for your coworkers, for your friends, for your neighbors. When Jesus says, love your neighbors yourself, I don't even know my friend because I'm just here. Now, I've got 500 friends. Those aren't your friends, right? It, it, ought, it ought to be renamed. These are your Facebook acquaintances, business contacts, stalkers, uh, people who mean you harm, whatever, right? They're not your friends. I mean, it's certainly not the friendship that we talk about um, with Christ. We're in a biblical community. It's not even close. So this sloth, this thing to be on our phones and in digital media all the time, it is to be checked out. Now, to be checked out doesn't mean that you're lazy. You can be just as checked out with busyness, can't you? You ever have a friend... It's like, hey, 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 how you doing? Oh, I'm running, I'm running here, I'm running there. Busyness is also an out so that you don't have to deal with people. Isn't that true? You can, be just, you can be just as checked out being busy as you can be checked out staying in the bed. Either way. I came across this meme that I love. Oh, you think I'm OCD? Well, I think you're a slacker who can't do things right. Right? It, both ends, friends. It's about what connects us to God and others or what separates from, from God and others. The other thing that I think largely goes unchecked in our country today, um, and certainly in Christian communities, is that sloth is to do shoddy work for your employer. A lot of people don't think about the witness that we have at work. Uh, Each and every one of you that go to work is a witness for Christ or a witness against Christ. Every time you show up for work. So think about this. Uh, When you first got a job or you got a promotion... And you came in five, ten minutes earlier than the boss. You kind of knew when that would be. And you'd get up there and you'd get in there early. Because you wanted to be thought of well. You, you told them that you were going to be a really great employee. You're going to show it to them. And then three years later, maybe that boss is gone. And you're pretty secure in your job. Maybe you're tenured in where you are. And, you know, the alarm goes off. You think, eh, I got ten more minutes. They can't fire me. And you just roll in 15 minutes later than you used to. 20 minutes later than you used to. Maybe you're the boss. And you just come in when you want to. If you want to. Because, you know, other people figured out, I mean, what are they going to do to you? And, I mean, it, it really is quite telling, isn't it? I mean, if you're in a co-working situation, and, and most of the days people come in at this time, but when they know the boss is out of town, they come in at that time. I mean, you learn a lot about people just watching how they work. Are they diligent? Are they vigilant? Are they obedient in the things they say that they're going to do? And you might say to yourself, look, nobody's going to notice if I do my work well. People notice. I'm just saying, I love it. It says, laziness, you have the power. 
right? People notice. And they think, so they, these are the people that follow Jesus. This, so this is what Jesus is about. They just do what you want to do. And then put some Jesus on it and they'll be like, fine. Now, sometimes it can lead to creativity. I'm going to try this at home. I mean, that's a good idea, right? My life. That would be very cool. Um, you know, you wish you would have thought of it sooner too. I know. But here's the thing about sloth. It ignores the lonely. It doesn't care for the unpopular or the needy around us. All the things that Jesus did when he would heal the sick and lay hands and the blind would see and the deaf would hear and the lame would walk. He would feed the hungry and clothe the naked. Sloth does none of that. Because it's uncomfortable. It would actually make me get out of bed. Because my cats haven't gotten me out of bed yet. They just turn off the lights. They can't get me all the way out yet. Right? So the thing about sloth is, at the end of the day, it shrinks your soul. It actually comes down to where you are not growing in Christ-likeness. You're actually shrinking to the worst version of yourself. Because it's all about you. So the answer to this very real problem is diligence. Which is earnest labor, godly zeal, vigilance, and watchfulness. Watchfulness. Now, this week, um, and actually between services and after service, uh, we will be super watchful. Bible school is when we are super watchful because we're watching for little ones in the parking lot. I hope you are too, right? I mean, the, the last thing we want to do is have a kid, you know, wind up hurt in the parking lot or in the pond if we had one, right? So the thing is we don't want any of those things to happen, but it requires vigilance. It requires diligence. It, it requires zeal. I mean, I hope that if you see any kid in our community ever run out towards the parking lot without a hand of somebody, that you yell out, stop, and you go and you grab them, and you bring them to me, and you say, I don't know who this kid belongs to, but I'm holding them until their parents show up. Seriously, every kid is our kid, right? Every person in our community belongs to our community. And so it matters that we're watchful, that we're zealous for keeping them safe and the things of God and teaching them in the way that leads to life. This week, as Andy and I were preparing, he came across this quote from Eugene Peterson, and I love it. It says, faithfulness, which is another word for diligence, is a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. And Jesus did this perfectly. He modeled it so well for us. Diligence is the ability to do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. And Jesus did this perfectly. He did the will of the Father perfectly every time. Because he was willing. Because he loved his father. So Jesus modeled this diligence, this vigilance, this obedience throughout his whole life. So quickly, as we, as we look at Jesus' life, first of all, he was baptized by his cousin John. Now, that doesn't seem like any big deal at the face of it. But do any of you all have older cousins? Do you? Yeah, I do. And, and the thing is, in, in the family system... You know, you've got like the adult table and the kid table. And there's always a thing of like who moves up in the table and... And, you know, normally, if you were to choose of all the great spiritual people in your life about who's going to baptize you, how many of you are choosing your older cousin? Not many. Particularly if they eat locusts and wild honey and wear camel's hair. I mean, John is maybe six months older than Jesus, maybe nine months. I mean, you remember the story where uh, Mary and Elizabeth go and the, and the babies leap in their womb. And so they're not far apart, right? So when John says, hey, I'm your elder, come be baptized, Jesus is like, really? No, Jesus is obedient to what he's called to do, even to humble himself before his cousin, who's that much older than he is, right? 
So, and, and the Gospel of Mark, it says it like this. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by his cousin John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved. With you I am, say it with me, well pleased. So when Jesus is obedient, when he is faithful, when he's diligent in what God's calling him to do, the heavens of, of, of the earth open. And his father comes and says, listen to him. This is my son. Now, from there, it actually gets harder for Jesus. He immediately goes from there and goes out to the wilderness for 40 days, the scripture says. 40 days, and he was tempted by Satan. He ate nothing, right? He's fasting, he's praying, he's out in the wilderness. And the scripture, again, and Mark says this, the spirit drives him out into the wilderness. He's there for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts out in the desert. And then the angels waited on him. And that's true for us as well. When we step into the things of God, when we do what God asks us to do, all of heaven is cheering you on. All of heaven is cheering you on. Angels will bless you and keep you and help you. But we have to be obedient. It's that faithful step and then trust God with the next step. And then we come to this week. Diligently and faithfully, obediently, Jesus chose to go to Jerusalem. Now, friends, this is super important. We must never, ever put Jesus in the category of a victim. He's not a victim. He knew the cross was before him, and he chose it. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. He'd been there many times before. He knew exactly what was coming. And so, according to the Gospel of Luke, it says, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he knew that he would die there. He knew that's what was going to befall him. Now, I want you to think about that trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem. It's about a nine days walk. And so I wonder if Jesus, as he left his hometown and, and he gets to about here, he thinks, hmm, am I really going to go to Jerusalem? He gets through the mountains and he comes down to the Jordan Valley and he thinks, wow, there's got to be a different way. He walks through another night, another day. He's walking with his disciples and, you know, he's thinking about it. He's thinking, he gets to Jericho and nobody in their right mind goes down the Jericho road. We all know what happens there. You get beat up, mugged or worse killed on the side of the road, left for dead. And then Jesus decides, no. At each step, he chooses you. He chooses the salvation of the world. So when they had come near Jerusalem, the Gospel of Matthew says, Jesus sends two disciples. This is what we celebrate at Palm Sunday. And he says, go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you're going to find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me, Jesus says. And this took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet, saying, tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming. Humble and, read it with me, mounted on a donkey. Now that's important because nowhere else in the Bible is Jesus ever recorded on a donkey. Not once. He's done a public ministry for three years. Um, he's been in his parents' carpentry shop for 30 years before that, roughly. And at this moment, there's a donkey. And the prophet says, if you come in to Jerusalem on a donkey, you're going to be the prophet. And so Jesus says, hey, the Lord needs them. He'll send them immediately, and they do. So the disciples, they go. They did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, and he put their cloaks on them. And say it with me. He sat on them. So here's the thing. He gets all the way to Jerusalem. He still has a chance to back out. And he has to decide, am I going to walk in unnoticed because God's calling me to Jerusalem, but if I get on the donkey, I'm dead for sure. Because what that means is I'm the chosen one. It means I am the Savior. It means I am the coming king. 
and Rome will get me for that. And if Rome misses me, then certainly the religious leaders of Herod will get me. So if I get on that donkey, that's the end of me. And again, he chooses you. He chooses the world. A very large crowd spreads their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees, and they spread them on the road. And the crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna, the son of David. Now who's David? The greatest king to have ever lived. And this is his son. This is the heir to the crown. This is the Savior, the chosen one. And then they yelled out, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil. Well, I guess so. They were asking, who is this? Who is this man on a donkey? Who is the one claiming to be the Messiah, the coming king? Who is claiming to be the Savior? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So as he comes down from the Mount of Olives and he makes his way up, he goes to the very center of religious life and he shuts it down. He goes to the very heart of the matter and he turns it upside down. The Gospel of Matthew says it like this. It says, Then Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who were selling and buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house should be called a house of what? Prayer. But you are making a den of robbers. Now, make no mistake, this isn't, this isn't something uh, that we get out of either. That there's always that temptation to take the things of God and turn them to our own profit. It's true for every person. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This is to be a place of prayer. This is not about your bottom line. And then he does something else. If, if that weren't enough, he then brings in the blind and the lame. They, he brings them into the temple. Now, you'll remember that to be blind or lame puts you outside of community. You had no business in the temple if you were not perfect. If you were not a, a really good, wonderful, uh, God-fearing Jew... Blind and lame, they weren't supposed to be any near them. Jesus brings them in. He's turned over the tables. Then he brings in the people that aren't supposed to be there, and he cures them. He doesn't just heal their symptoms for a little bit. He cures them. And when the chief priest and the scribes saw the amazing things that Jesus did and heard the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became what? Now, isn't that weird to you? I mean, as religious folks, we read this all the time. We're like, well, sure, we know the story. No, no, no. Try to, try to rip off all your religious training. That's weird. I mean, think about it. If you had family and friends that were blind and then they could see, they were lame and they could walk. They were deformed and their, their bodies were made whole, shalom, nothing missing, nothing broken. And you saw somebody do that. Would you be angry about that? You see, Jesus threatened everything they knew. And, and this is the deal, friends particularly with overly religious people. You get sat out of their box, you get outside of their box about who's in and who's out, they'll kill you for it. Isn't that true about religious folk? So we have to be really careful that Jesus comes and brings in people that they said didn't belong and he heals them, he cures them for life and they're angry about it. We, we, we need to pay attention to that. You would expect them to be just overwhelmed with joy. And so Jesus says to them, do you hear what these are saying? And, and Jesus says, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes? You have prepared praise for yourself. Well, now he's done it. He's claimed the very name of God for himself. Now, you remember that Yahweh wasn't to be spoken out loud and certainly wasn't to be written. And here is Jesus quoting scripture as if it's about him, because it is. So there's this 
terrible scene at the temple, and Jesus leaves it. The, the story picks up, actually. So here's the temple. It, at the time, it took up a third of the city. There's the temple mount all the way out here to here. That's where the wall goes. Jesus is going to leave here, and he's going to walk through the old city over here to the upper room. And then from there, after supper, he's going to make his way all the way around the wall of the city over to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's not close, friends, but he's going to go there to pray. We'll see that in just a minute. So the scripture says in John, now before the festival of the Passover, you'll remember that Passover is that annual celebration where God saved the Jews from the Egyptians by parting the sea. He brings the Jews through to freedom and salvation, and then he closes the waters and kills the Egyptians. That's what they're celebrating every year. 1,300 years since the time of Moses. And Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. He's being obedient in this. And when Jesus gathered his disciples for the Last Supper, they were having trouble deciding who was the greatest. Now, you have to understand that when you're um, struggling with who's the greatest, what you really mean is who's the least. Right? Richard Foster writes it this way. He says, whenever there's trouble over who's the greatest, there's trouble over who's the least. Most of us know we will never be the greatest. Just don't let us be the least. I can remember running track and practicing in track, and, and I was almost never first. I think you could say I was never first. But there was something inside me where I was not going to be last. Isn't that true? You don't want to be least. You don't want to be last. You don't want to be lost. And so they gathered at the Passover feast. And the disciples were keenly aware that someone, someone, not them of course, but someone was supposed to wash the other's feet. Now normally that was reserved for the lowest of the low. That either servant or the, the lowest person on the society will rung. The problem was that only people who washed feet were the least. So there they were. Now, the tradition, as I understand it, is that there would be a bowl, water in a basin, and it would sit at the door of the host. And normally, a servant or someone would come out, and as the guest would arrive, they would begin to wash feet before you would come into the home. You didn't want to track mud and dust into the home. Now, this is the Passover meal, which means everybody's going to be there. Right? You, you don't miss the Passover meal. And there are 12 disciples. Count them, friends, 12. And in my mind's eye, Jesus is sort of down the street a little bit watching, like, how's this going to go? I, I've taught them for three years. They know that we are to be servants, that we are to bless other people, that we're here to serve. And here comes Peter. And he looks at the bowl, and he thinks, Nope. I'm the rock upon which Jesus is going to build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against me. I'm going to the table. Andrew, James, John, Matthew, Nathaniel, Judas, son of James, Bartholomew, Thomas. They all walk past the bowl. Simon the Zealot, James the Less. I mean, surely the guy's name is James the Less. Surely it's going to be him. Nope. And I just wonder, Judas Iscariot, by the way. And I just wonder if they think, well, you know, I probably should. But that thing that James said to me last week, no, he'll bring it up. He'll say, remember, I told you that you were the least. And they go in. So they're all there at the table with dirt caked on their feet. And they've had the whole meal, a, a celebration that is to unite them as people committed to God and one another and to the world. It's a celebration of what God has done for them. And during the supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all these things into his hands and that he had come from God, was going to God, he gets up from the table, he took off his outer robe, 
And I think if we had a tape recorder, you would have heard a collective groan when Jesus ties a towel around himself. Because everybody at the table, everyone at the table knew that it should have been them. And now, the master was going to do something that they all knew should have been done hours ago. And they were ashamed. They didn't know what to do. So Jesus, then he pours the water into a basin and begins to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was tied around him. And he comes to Simon Peter who says to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus answers, you don't know what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. And Peter said to him, you will never wash my feet, which, by the way, is what every other person at the table was thinking too. Right? That's not unique to Peter. They had all blown it. Peter's just the one that's going to own it. And Jesus answers, unless I wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter says, oh, well, if that's the deal, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands, my head, all of it. And after Jesus had washed their feet, he'd put on his robe and he'd return to the table. He says to them, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to, say it with me, wash one another's feet. This is what we do as Christ followers. We look to serve. At every turn. We don't say, how can I get out of this? We say, Lord, how can I get into this with you? How will you get into this with me? And Jesus says, I've set you an example that you also should do as I've done to you. Very truly, I tell you, servants are not greater than their master. If you know these things, you are blessed, what? If you do them. And, and I would submit to you that this is the crux of the Protestant problem in America. That we think somehow we've got easy street if we just give mental assent to Jesus. That is not what the scripture says. The scripture says you're going to be blessed if you do it. Not if you think about it. Not if you look at the bowl and walk on. And we got to get that right. That the gift of salvation is given to us which requires a response. So in the last night of Jesus' life, when he could have done anything, he washed feet. He served those around him who were lesser than he was. He knew it, they knew it, and he did it anyway because that's what diligence looks like. That's what obedience looks like. That's what faithfulness looks like. The other thing that Jesus did on the last night of his life was to pray, to ask for Holy Spirit power, to ask God to give him a way out if there was one, and if not, to give him power to, to live in to salvation for all of us. And so he does. So in Matthew 26, Jesus goes to them to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and begins to be grieved and agitated. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here. And what is the ask of Jesus? That doesn't seem like a big one to me. I mean, that's sort of lowest common denominator, isn't it? Just stay awake. And they don't. They can't even do that. And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and he prays, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me and say it with me, yet not what I want, but what you want. That is diligence. That is faithfulness. That is obedience. That is life in Christ. I mean, aren't you glad that Jesus on this night didn't look and go, hmm, that looks painful. I'll pass. It changed the whole world, friends. And it does today. It requires our best. It requires our best effort to have Jesus come and live within us for us to pick up our cross and follow Jesus daily, daily, every day. And what better week to start again than Holy Week, this Palm Sunday. So I know this is, this is huge of what it is to fall into the Christian life of yet not what I want, but what you want. To set sloth aside and to say, no, Lord, whatever you want me to do, I'll do. So here's some ways that we might try. The first is to do something active to serve someone this week. 
I want you to think about when you get home. Oftentimes for me, I've, I feel like I've done a full day's work and I'm ready to just check out. And so I'll sit down. The last thing I want to do is to be active. But I also know that when I'm not active, um, I feel terrible. I don't sleep as well. And so you have abilities to get up out of your lazy boy. Uh, notice that it's not the good old boy. It's a lazy boy chair. You've got to get up out of it. Maybe you walk the dog. Maybe you cut some flowers. Maybe you weed the garden. Maybe you're there active for your child. Something. And then you feel better. Secondly, then use your skills or unique gifts or talents to create something valuable or meaningful in this world and to share it with somebody. Now, Chantel, uh, if she was telling on me, would tell you, I don't do this very well or very often. But a few weeks ago, I actually uh, did it, and I felt great about it. There was a freeze coming, and so uh, there were some daffodils that we had planted earlier in the year. And so I just went out and I cut all of them that were left. And I put them in a vase, and I put them on the dining room table. And for the next few days, I'd walk by and say, huh, that's great. And I was filled with pride, which was a few weeks ago. I'm hoping you forgot that sermon, <laughs> right? But it, it just made me feel good. I felt great about it. Uh, it blessed the family. Uh, it blessed me just simply by being active and doing something to bless the world, to bring beauty into the world, right? Something, something you can do. Thirdly, then, this week, read three chapters of the Bible. Super simple. You can pick up the story where we've left it today. And read chapter 22, 23, and 24, and it will take you all the way to the resurrection, the Easter story. Now, I also hope that you'll be with us Friday night for Good Friday service. It's one of the most powerful services we have all year, and it really sets the stage for Easter because there is not a crown without a cross, and we thank Jesus for, you, for it. And then finally, whatever you do, it doesn't have to be religious by any stretch. Whatever you do, people are watching. Do it for, it is the Sunday school answer. Who are you doing it for? Ah, you got it right, right? Whatever you do, do it for Jesus. The scripture tells us whatever your task, put yourselves into it, read it with me, as done for the Lord, not for your master, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You serve the Lord Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are enough, that you call us to action, to get up off the couch and into your great kingdom, that we would see you, we would see others, we would see our neighbor, we would see our family, and we would move with you for the very transformation of the world. Put us to doing. Put us to suffering. Let us be laid aside for you for a moment to rest, and then again at work for you to be able to do the right thing at the right time for the right reasons as you have shown us and taught us. And when we don't even know how to do that, we think you've taught us even how to pray about it by saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.